All right, we're back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Uh, Mike and Paul doing chapter nine, Capitalist Realism, page 71. Chapter's called Marxist Super Nanny. How you doing today, Paul? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Do you want to, as tradition dictates, start us off here? I would love to. All right, chapter number nine. Marxist super nanny. <clears throat> Last chapter of the book, too. My God. My Woo-woo. God. All right. Uh, nothing could be a clearer illustration of what Zizek has identified as the failure of the father function, the crisis of the paternal superego in late capitalism, than a typical edition of super nanny. The program offers what amounts to a relentless, although of course implicit, attack on postmodernity's permissive hedonism. Super Nanny is a Spinozist insofar, uh, like Spinoza, she takes it for granted that children are in a state of objection. They are unable to recognize their own interests, unable to apprehend either the causes of their actions or their usually deleterious effects. But the problems that Super Nanny confronts do not arise from the actions or character of the children who can only be expected to be idiotic hedonists, but with the parents. It is the parents following of the trajectory of the pleasure principle, the path of least resistance that causes most of the misery in the families. In a pattern that quickly becomes familiar, the parents' pursuit of the easy life leads them to accede to their children's every demand, which become increasingly tyrannical. What is, uh, hold on, what does deleterious mean? Uh, I'm just guessing like, negative like negative effects on themselves okay but causing harm or damage yeah okay all right all right obviously that's pretty true it's something i think about when previous generations talk shit about following generations it's like wait didn't you raise them uh rather like many teachers or other workers in what used to be called public service super nanny has to sort out problems of socialization that the family can no longer resolve a Marxist supernanny would, of course, turn away from the troubleshooting of individual families to look at the structural causes which produce the same repeated effect. I think if we just started that as a reality show, in time, our country would adopt it as its political mantra, as evidenced by modern times, as a matter of fact. We just got to get more hyped on reality shows, creating reality shows, not watching. Uh, the problem is that late capitalism insists and relies upon the very equation of desire with interests that parenting used to be based on rejecting. In a culture in which the paternal concept of duty has been subsumed into the maternal imperative to enjoy, it can seem that the parent is failing in their duty if they in any way impede their children's absolute right to enjoyment. Partly, this is an effect of the increasing requirement that both parents work. In these conditions, when the parent sees the child very little, the tendency will often be to refuse to occupy the oppressive function of telling the child what to do. The parental disavowal of this role is doubled at the level of cultural production by the refusal of gatekeepers to do anything but give audiences what they already appear to want. The concrete question is, if a return to the paternal superego, the stern father in the home, Rythian super um, superciliousness in broadcasting. I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. means. I know that Rythian is like kind of a Murdoch type character. Like he owned a bunch of Scottish broadcasting shit. Okay. But I don't know. Behaving or looking as one thinks one is superior to others. You could almost say that somebody would have to be super silly 
to practice superciliousness. Ah, <laughs> sorry, you can cut that out. <laughs> I don't think I will. I don't think I will. Um, okay. Is uh, Reikian's superciliousness in broadcasting is neither possible nor desirable. Then how are we to move beyond the cultural of the culture of monotonous moribund conformity that results from a refusal to challenge or educate? Hold a on, moribund. What yeah, is, I think it's uh, just like boring. Dude, hold on. We're doing that one too. I'm sorry. I don't, I've never even heard of Shit, that. No, it's a person at the point of death. Okay. Kind of, uh, kind of like morbid or, um, yeah. so I guess that M-O-R-I, uh, like prefix or whatever is, uh, yeah. it's gonna, yeah, have something to do with death. Yeah, moribund. That results from a refusal to challenge or educate. A question as massive as this cannot, of course, be finally answered in a short book such as this, and what follows here will amount to a few starting points and suggestions. In brief, though, I believe that it is Spinoza who offers the best resources for thinking through what a paternalism without father might look like. I really like Spinoza. Uh, it's weird that, like, with all of these people, I never know everything that they talked about. Right. Like, my knowledge of him is more about his like argument that like, well, if God is infinite, then God is a part of you. God is a part of me. Kind of that like rationale, like rationalist, like I'm not allowed to admit that I don't believe in God, but I might want to talk about some of the sillier points. Sort of shit. Yeah. That's um, what I know about for Spinoza. So I know yeah. that he was a Jew. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that he wasn't, uh, I think he had to like run around because people were constantly being yeah, like, people being were like, very mad at Spinoza. Yeah. Uh, and I think, didn't he leave Judaism at some point? Maybe. I, I don't know. Sure. I don't I'm know. I'm not sure either. I'm yeah. Sure. Um, cool guy though. I like yeah. Spinoza as that, far as historical figures go. It's just uh, like, like I've said before, it is just crazy that I assume with stuff like this, Mark Fisher already knew this about Spinoza and plugged this in yeah. rather than being like, well, what philosophers talked about parenting, you know, right. from the enlightenment or whatever, you know, that's yep. what's crazy to me. It's just having enough like general knowledge about it from enough thinkers to be able to, to just pull stuff and, and like, like algebra, just like plug stuff in. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. No, oh, that's for just sure. crazy to me. The X is Spinoza. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. So, uh, all right. I'll, I'll go here. Um, in what's this word? Uh, tarrying? In tarrying uh, with the negative, Zizek famously argues that a certain Spinozan, Spinozism is the ideal ideology of late capitalism. Zizek believes that Spinoza's rejection of deontology for an ethics based around the concept of health is allegedly flat with capitalism's amoral, effective engineering. I don't know what that means. Talk to me about what that means. Um, Zizek believes that Spinoza's rejection, rejection of deontology for an ethics based around the concept of health is allegedly flat with capitalism's amoral effective engineering. Um, I know that deontology, or I think deontology is uh, constial, that it's like not about the outcome, it's about the process. So it's like the opposite of utilitarianism. Like it's like if you- right. based on a set someone, of rules rather right. than outcomes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously they're saying Spinoza did not think that you could 
build a system of ethics based around just the concept of your health, I guess, um, if that makes sense. Maybe that's not like an, a uh, goal to build a set of ethics around. And, and he, he rejected deontology. The rejection sure. of deontology. I'm not sure if he's just reject. I think he's just rejecting the deontology of an ethics based around the concept of health. Okay. Okay. Um, and then what does he mean by allegedly flat with capitalism? Dude, I don't fucking know. Like, I'd like to say it's allegedly even. Okay. Um, but I am trying to, like, even look up. Like alternatives of flat. Yeah, flat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, utterly ruined or destroyed. Maybe as we read on, it will become more clear, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Okay. The famous example here is Spinoza's reading of the myth of the fall and the foundation of law. On Spinoza's account, God does not condemn Adam for eating the apple, but the action is wrong. He tells him that he... Because the action is wrong. Oh, okay. Because uh, Because the action is wrong. He tells him that he should not consume the apple because it will poison him. For Zizek, this dramatizes the termination of the father function. An act is wrong not because daddy says so. Daddy only says it is wrong, in uh, quotes, because performing the act will be harmful to us. In Zizek's view, Spinoza's uh, move both deprives the grounding of law in a sadistic act of scission. Uh, yeah. What's scission? scission? I'm guessing it has to be some sort of an aggressive act of cutting, okay, if you will, or the cruel act of castration is what okay. it says after there, but just because of the word scissors. Okay. Okay. The act of scission, the cruel act of, uh, of cut, uh, the cruel cut castration. of castration. Sorry. At the same time as it denies the grounded position of agency in an act of pure volition in which the subject assumes responsibility for everything. In fact, Spinoza has immense resources for analyzing the effect or effective regime of late capitalism. The video drone control apparatus described by Burroughs, Philip K. Dick, and David Cronenberg in which agency is dissolved in a phantasmagoric haze of psychic and physical intoxicants. Uh, Can we look up phantasmagoric? Yeah, yeah, we can. Are they talking about a movie? Like, did David Cronenberg do more than make gross-looking movie creatures? I don't think so, but I think that he always worked on, like, the same sort of sci-fi shit. Yeah, it's just, it's a form of horror theater that used one or more form, uh, one or more magic lanterns to project lanterns to project frightening images such as skeletons, demons, and ghosts onto walls. Uh, It would also use rear projection to keep the lantern out of sight. Okay. In which the agency is dissolved into a phantasmagoric haze of psychic and physical intoxicants. Like Burroughs, Spinoza shows that far from being an aberrant uh, condition, addiction is the standard state for human beings who are habitually enslaved into reactive and repetitive behaviors by frozen images of themselves and the world. 
uh, freedom Spinoza shows is something that can be achieved only when we can apprehend the real causes of our actions, when we can set aside the sad passions, in quotes, that intoxicate and in, entrance us. Is, uh, is entrance and entrance the same spelling? It yeah. is. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. Okay. So basically, we're just talking about how people's, uh, people can't achieve freedom if they're not aware of what they're being trapped by. And mm -hmm. um, what they're being uh, trapped by is causes addiction and is horrific. Yeah. And that the, the real way to freedom also is, yeah, just to understand what the real causes of our actions are. Um, you know, we've talked about that a lot on the show, just like the fact of being an American and buying stuff means that I am at some point exploiting other humans and things of that nature. And you know what? It is true. I'm not free from that. I acknowledge it, but I don't take all the steps necessary to completely like extricate myself right. uh, from that reality. But, um, but it sounds to me like just being self-aware and self-critical is yeah, like the most important part of, of that. Yeah. Self-examined um, life, you know. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that late capitalism certainly articulates many of its injunctions via an appeal to, in parentheses, a certain version of health. The banning of smoking in public places, the relentless monstering of working class diet on programs like You Are What You Eat do appear to indicate that we are already in the presence of a paternalism without the father. It is not that smoking is wrong, in quotes. It is that it will lead to our failing to lead long and enjoyable lives. But there are limits to this emphasis on good health. Mental health and intellectual development barely feature at all, for instance. What we see instead is a reductive hedonic model of health, which is all about feeling and looking good. To tell people how to lose weight or how to decorate their house is acceptable, but to call for any kind of cultural improvement is to be oppressive and elitist. Um, that, that's such like a, like, it's so true. And I guess I've never really thought about that. Even reading the chapter before, it didn't hit me that like, goddamn, yeah. You can personally critique anybody for anything you fucking want, and that is okay. But somehow critiquing the system we live in is too personal or too taboo to bring up. Such a weird thing. The alleged elitism and oppression cannot consist in the notion that a third party might know someone's interest better than they know it themselves, since presumably smokers are deemed either to be unaware of their interests or incapable of acting in accordance with them. No, the problem is that only certain types of in interest are deemed relevant, since they reflect values that are held to be consensual. Losing weight, decorating your house, and uh, improving your appearance belong to the consensual in quotes regime i think it's consentimental oh you're right you're right you're right right okay uh, appearance belong to the consentimental uh regime in the excellent interview at the register.com the documentary filmmaker adam curtis oh adam curtis identifies yeah. the 
contours of this regime of effective management. One thing that was distracting me is if you look at the bottom of page 73, the last paragraph, why is the spacing fucked? Do you see that? I don't know. Yeah, with losing weight, decorating your house, and could just be typeset. Like they wanted to hit uh, a certain number of pages. I never know why they do that. That happens occasionally, Uh, and I'm always confused by that. That I want to say, and it it makes mostly sense, the smoking outdoors thing, I feel mm-hmm. like does kind of fall into a different category because then you are potentially causing harm to like other people. Uh, whereas being out of shape, your house not being decorated well, those sorts of things are completely like without any outside victims. But I feel like I think Fisher's retort or rebuttal to that would be, okay, well, if we're concerned about that, then instead of telling the individual you're being shitty, we need to tell the corporations you're not allowed to sell this stuff or we need to tell we need to have a uh, society where profit motive doesn't encourage firms to sell addictive products to people right right and there are like legit issues with cigarette companies outside of like making your own personal choice like when you get caught marketing to children and shit for a product that's not supposed to be sold to children. I guess I'm going down a huge rabbit hole because you could do that with sugary food. TV now tells you what to feel It doesn't tell you what to think anymore. From EastEnders to reality format shows, you're on the emotional journey of people. And through the editing, it gently suggests to you what is the agreed form of feeling. Hugs and kisses, I call it. I nicked that off of Mark Ravenhill, who wrote a very good piece, which said that if you analyze television now, it's a system of guidance. It tells you who is having the bad feelings and who is having the good feelings. And the person who is having the bad feelings is redeemed through a hugs and kisses moment at the end. It really is a system not of moral guidance, but of emotional guidance. Morality has been replaced by feeling. In the empire of the self, everyone feels the same without ever escaping a condition of solipsism. What people suffer from, Curtis claims. Um, I feel like we've looked up solipsism We have. It's like the base of it is just uh, um, not fully understanding that anything outside of yourself exists. Okay. What people suffer from, Curtis claims, is being trapped within themselves. In a world of individualism, everyone is trapped within their own feelings, trapped within their own imaginations. Our job as public service broadcasters is to take people beyond the limits of their own self. And until we do that, we will carry on declining. The BBC should realize that I have an idealistic view. But if the BBC could do that, taking people beyond their own selves, it will renew itself in a way that jumps over the competition. The competition is obsessed by serving people in their little selves. And in a way, actually, Murdoch, for all his power, is trapped by the self. That's his job, to feed the self. In the BBC, it's the next step forward. It doesn't mean we go back to the 1950s and tell people how to dress. What we do say is, we can free you from yourself, and people would love it. That's... I guess better, but also a little scary, I suppose. Yeah, I can certainly see that. It's one of those things where it kind of depends on, I guess, what you're into within TV. I mean, this book isn't that old, but it's crazy how much the internet has changed, like the media landscape, as far as like what shows get greenlit and shit like that. I guess it's kind of a... I feel like maybe some of that change that Curtis was referring to uh, was kind of actually adopted. Can you give an example? 
yeah, I guess just more risque or invocative shows exist in this day and age where people like HBO, Netflix, things like that can make their own shows without needing to get advertising dollars. Uh, like Midnight Gospel would be a super good example. I feel like that show is actually intended literally to free yourself from certain you know, ruts you might be in or whatever by talking about how others have done that for themselves. Uh, but to me that, and I love that show, but I, to me that show is about emotional guidance. It's about yeah. rather than moral guidance. It's about helping you find in yourself an equilibrium of be able to like, you know, um, transcend your emotional experiences rather right. than a show that is talking about how to free yourself from the individual and I, guess I don't it, even know what that would look like like that's why right. i asked for example that's i guess the closest i could get in just my head i guess it's more the concept that it's like not exactly telling you what to do it's not exactly guiding you with like force fed this is this person this is this archetype in the show this is that archetype it really does just kind of buck a lot of traditions that i feel like most tv would have had to adhere to yeah but like I said, and I do agree with you that it does like buck a lot of trends. And I mm -hmm. even feel like Mark Fisher talks about like how there is nothing new. When I saw that show, I was like, I wonder what he would say about this. I wonder yeah. how he would categorize this. But yet it does, in my mind, clearly talk about emotional guidance rather right. than moral guidance. But it does things guidance. like taking people beyond their own selves because of things that we were into i'm not sure there's a ton of shocking new shit in that show uh but it was just really refreshing to see a show that oh, the whole intention was to like open people up to new ways of thought i feel if that okay makes sense yeah. as opposed to like reinforcing you know like like a disney channel show like if you just do this you'll fit in and finally have friends and shit like that right. uh it doesn't fall into like that category it is really actually more about like self-examination and maybe you know in some ways freeing yourself from you know things stresses anxieties social constructs that had been worrying you um yeah. you know it's just a much different and i guess to that point as i'm saying that i wonder how fisher like you said would feel about shit like that um, yeah. because some of the things um and because of things that he was talking about these things kind of exist in a way due to some decentralization of certain media conglomerates and shit like that. Like they don't have control over all the channels anymore. So you get to see we're losing a lot of that pretty quickly. You know, it's not the wild west of streaming and shit that it was four or five years ago, but it's not like it was before streaming either. Curtis, Curtis attacks the internet because in his view, it facilitates communities of solipsis. Solipsists? Solipsis. Interpassive networks of like minds who confirm rather than challenge each other's assumptions and prejudices. Instead of having to confront other points of view in a contested public space, these communities retreat into closed circuits. But Curtis claims the impact of internet lobbies on old media is d disastrous, since not only does it its reactive uh, proactivity allow the media class to further what's that abnegate i don't know let's what does that mean like ignore okay i'm gonna look that up i guess hold on okay <laughs> sorry abnegate to renounce or reject okay okay uh abnegate its function to educate and lead 
it also allows populist currents on both the left and the right to bully media producers into turning out programming that is, oh my God, um, what is that? Adenine. Anodyne is like intentionally dull, I think. Okay, and, and mediocre. And I've, I've come across Anodyne before. Yeah, it's intentionally not offensive. Okay, all right. And uh, Adidine and mediocre. Curtis's critique has a point, but it misses important dimensions of what is happening on the net. Contrary to Curtis's account of blogging, blogs can generate new discourse networks that have no correlate in the social field outside uh, cyberspace. As old okay, media... I'm gonna, sorry. What's weird is that I think correlate and correlate are the same things, but I pronounce that word differently depending on where it is in a sentence. Okay, yeah. I just think that's the weird, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that is weird. As old media increasingly becomes uh, subsumed into PR and the consumer report replaces the critical essay, some zones of cyberspace offer resistance to a critical compression that is elsewhere depressingly pervasive. Nevertheless, the interpassive simulation of part participation in postmodern media, the network narcissism of MySpace and Facebook has, in the main, generated content that is repetitive, parasitic, and conformist. In a seeming irony, the media class's refusal to be paternalistic has not produced a bottom-up culture of breathtaking diversity, but one uh, that is increasingly infantilized. By contrast, it is paternalistic cultures that treat audiences as adults, as adults, assuming that they can cope with cultural products that are complex and intellectually demanding. The reason that, that focus groups and capitalist feedback systems fail, even when they generate commodities that are immensely popular, is that people do not know what they want. This is not only because people's desire is already present, but concealed from them, although this is often the case. Rather, uh, the most powerful forms of desire are precisely cravings for the strange, the unexpected, the weird. These can only be supplied by artists and media professionals who are prepared to give people something different from that which already satisfies them. By those that, that is to say, prepared to take a certain kind of risk. The Marxist supernanny uh, would not only be the one who laid down limitations, who acted in our own interests when we are incapable of recognizing them ourselves, but also the one prepared to take this kind of risk, to wager on the strange and our appetite for it. It is another irony that capitalism's society of risk is much less likely to take this kind of risk than was the supposedly dodgy Mm -hmm. what is stodgy like stuffy i think conservative like fancy but i'm making that low it's gonna be something nothing like that dull and uninspired so okay. uh 
of risk then was the supposedly stodgy centralized culture of the post-war social consensus. It was the public service oriented BBC and Channel 4 that perplexed and delighted me with the likes of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Pinter Plays, and uh, Tarkovsky Seasons. It was this BBC that also founded the popular avant-gardism of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which in embedded sonic experimental experimentalism into everyday life. Such innovations are unthinkable now that the public has been displaced by the consumer. The effect of permanent structural instability, the cancelization of the long term, is inevitably stagnation and conservatism, not innovation. This is not a paradox. As Adam Curtis's remarks above make clear, the effects that predominate in late capitalism are fear and cynicism. These emotions do not inspire bold thinking or entrepreneurial leaps. They breed conformity and the cult of the minimal variation. The turning out of products which very closely resemble those that are already successful. Meanwhile, films such as the aforementioned Tarkovsky's Solaris and Stalker, plundered by Hollywood since as far back as Alien and Blade Runner, were produced in the ostensibly, what is this again? Morbund. Morbund conditions of the Brezhnev, or Brezhnevite, I don't know. Brezhnevite, yeah, because, uh, yeah. Brezhnev. Yeah, yeah. Brezhnevite uh, Soviet state, meaning that the USSR acted as a cultural entrepreneur for Hollywood. Since it is now clear that a certain amount of stability is necessary for cultural vibrancy, the question to be asked is how can this stability be provided and by what agencies? What agencies? Man, so much, so much in all that. Back to just like talking about the internet. My God, what a weird place. Shout out to Innuendo Studios for making it uh, much clearer in my head how a lot of that stuff works. Highly, highly recommend checking out really anything produced by, by that particular YouTube channel. They talk about obviously pretty standard internet, social media like MySpace and Facebook. And then they leave out shit like Chan boards, which are also in a whole different way, pretty pervasive and you know, dangerous in a different way. Uh, dangerous, but also could be positive, just depending on, on how you choose to use it, I suppose. <laughs> it is interesting to watch all of this just because I don't know how many time periods in life you get to watch something become corporatized. You know, like when we, uh, and I'm not saying I was like an early adopter of the internet, mostly because of where I lived, but when I first started really being into the internet, it was so much more like smaller sites, spread out sites. Um, you know, you'd have to go to five different websites to find all the videos you were looking for. So much of it was like bottom of the barrel, user created stuff that maybe 15 people would see. And then obviously, certain creators were able to prove how profitable it was that turned into conglomerates like YouTube. So to watch this all be commodified in real time has been a pretty interesting experience. And like, I guess I can't 100% prove this, but every single time a website that I enjoyed was monetized, 
I'm not going to say that it got worse, but it sure as shit got less creative because you start to focus on like what trends are making money. What do I know will get views? What do I know will do this? So not to say that the creativity and stuff isn't still there, but it's not the focus of the websites anymore. You know, he talks about um, stability um, driving creativity and innovation. And that is something I've thought about. And from like a uh, liberal rather than like leftist framework. So from like a capitalist framework rather than an anti-capitalist framework, I always think about how single payer healthcare could really help entrepreneurs because, uh, or just people that want to be entrepreneurs because there are so Mm -hmm. many people that maintain their jobs out of fear of losing their healthcare. And I'm sure are afraid to start a business because they're like, shit, the I don't know how to provide healthcare, healthcare yep. to employees. Yep. Right, right. Yeah, so I, to me, and, and then also I just think about how I, for most of my 20s, very common for me, once I had engaged with someone that was middle-aged or, or older for even just a few minutes, eventually they would be like, oh, you're so bright. Why are you doing this or why are you doing that? why aren't you, you know, in school or why aren't you doing this or that? I always thought like, I would love to do that. If you guys uh, would vote in a manner that allowed me to get free room and board while I got free schooling, regardless of what my ACT or SAT scores were, or regardless of what my high school GPA was five years ago or a decade ago, I would love to do that. And you're right, I might be able to contribute. But the reason I think, or one of the reasons why they don't do that is because they understand when there is stability, which ironically, I have more stability right now than I have had maybe not ever in my adult life. Oh, uh, the combination of stability and freedom, I had, Mm -hmm. or free time, okay, not freedom, but free time. The combination of stability and free time right now it is higher for me than it ever has been as an adult. And I know that's a unique situation currently, but look, look what happens when I have those two things, right? I'm reading radical books and trying to radicalize others. And I think that's why yep. there's a motivation to not give us stability. Oh yeah. You have free to, time. It's I think why there's such a push to reopen the country because so many Uh, Maybe it's more in the South than other places, but I see so many articles about people being like, my life is better on unemployment. Like I make more on unemployment. This is, and so I'm hoping that that sticks in people's minds and that this was a long enough time period that they don't just go back to work and forget that things could be better. And that's, what's crazy is that it's very clear that the administration and a lot of the political Uh, authorities that be throughout the country are so much more concerned with keeping this economic system not only going but favorable in people's minds as opposed to keeping people alive and to see all these like people who for decades have been able to stand by were pro-life ignoring war obviously um are so quickly to so quick to give up life in in exchange for yeah, strong capitalist systems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And that's a whole nother thing. But yeah, it is it is clear that that they have a scale of how much life is valued. And the yeah. younger the life is, the more valued it is. And it, yes, it, they're not cons- like they're not concerned with old people dying, and they're not concerned with adults that have pre existing conditions dying because in their minds, those people made choices 
you know, they have libertarian free will. So they made those choices mm-hmm. totally on their own without any influence. And that's why they're sick. And so fuck them. Yeah. You know? No, dude. So many people are like, I'm getting lupus today. And right. if I don't get right. lupus today, I'll get it tomorrow. Right. Uh, fucking well, cool. I think. Yeah. I think this is a good place to wrap it up. We're yeah. at the top of page 77. Uh, so next time will be part two of chapter nine of capitalist realism. And we appreciate y'all stopping by and spending some time. Have a great day.